Tech Fan Podcast number 361. I am Tim Robertson. And I am David Cohen. How are you today, David? I'm pretty good, yeah. Not in an ideal recording position today. I'm out in the corridor again. Yeah, it happens. Which is, yeah, they're, they're, the problem with a, with a new office is that to get everything finished takes ages. So at the moment they are putting up window film on all the uh, meeting rooms to try and make them more private and give them some branding, which is a fascinating process to watch. So is it, it, it's kind of that not clear but kind of uh, frosted look to them? Exactly, but they're, yeah. they're, they're not just putting big sheets of it up. They kind of they have our name in there, and they've got stripes and all that sort of thing. And the reason they're fascinating, because whenever I try and do anything like that, like even put a screen protector on our iPhone, it takes me about uh, half an hour and 15 goes before I get the bubbles out. Yeah. These guys, they are doing large areas, and they make it look like it just... You know, wants wants to attach the glass. They're real professionals. Yeah, um, Julie does a lot of that kind of stuff, but on a yeah. smaller scale. Yeah, her vinyl stuff. Uh huh. Yes, it is. It is. It's one of those things. You know, they, they uh, people talk about those YouTube videos that are just kind of comforting to watch, and it's like a spinning pot in a wheel or something like that. This is a little bit like that. It's very satisfying to watch this stuff go on for some reason. <laughs> yes, it is. I, we just had someone doing that at work, and. I didn't have a chance to stop and look, but it was, I mean, they just whip that stuff up there and it's perfect. You're like, I don't yeah. see one bubble or anything. How do they do that? Yeah. And it's always straight and lined up and yeah, yeah all the, all the skills that I don't have, they have. Yes. I'm with you. I don't have those <laughs> skills either. Mine would be crooked and at an angle and it would start, you know, thick on one end. It would be razor thin on the other. And yeah, <laughs> they'd be like, I don't know what happened. Yeah. Something, something happened. It wasn't what was yeah. supposed to happen, but it's kind of done, I guess. Yeah. So, um, kind of an interesting show last week, obviously. You know, we kind of went on the tear of Alex Jones getting kicked off, um, well, a couple different social media platforms as well as iTunes. And, uh, you know, we kind of came to the tech fan consensus that it was warranted, that if someone puts this much hate speech in the world, you know, maybe they don't belong on your platform. Yeah. Uh, and we were also hoping that Apple and Google would take the next step and remove the app as well. But of course they haven't done that. Um, I, I think that's still probably a possibility, but we'll see how that story goes. But we didn't really mention that Twitter had not suspended Alex Jones in his posting of linked videos there. Well, they finally did that. But of course, Twitter being the utter cowards they are and completely uh, rudderless when it comes to leadership, just suspended it for a week. Yeah, and it was just his personal Twitter account. They didn't do anything about the uh, the multiple uh, corporate accounts that Infowars run, so they were able to continue to go ahead. It was just they just banned the the personal guy for a week, which um, doesn't surprise me. You know, a lot of people get after Facebook for some of the stuff they do. I don't think that. I don't think Twitter has really gotten the media attention it deserves because I'll be honest with you, other than posting um, content from my Mac and tech fan and stuff like that on Twitter, I don't use it very much because it just seems like it's the perfect medium for trolls and hate speech. Yeah. It's a cesspool. It's yeah, an it, absolute it, it, cesspool. It's terrible. Uh, I, I love when Twitter first started I loved it I used it 
almost religiously. I was on there all the time, and now I just can't abide it. I really can't. Well, you have to curate it. Yeah, but even if you curate it, half the time, um, people that you follow um, are are posting links to things you don't like because they're complaining about them. Um, And... It, it's just it's it's just like it's it's a, like a crowded room full of people arguing with each other. Yes, that's that's all it does. It doesn't do anything else. Oh, except over in the corner, there's a group of people complaining to service providers about the service they get. The service providers are saying, "Why don't you drop me an email about that or a DM?" Um, but apart from that, that's all it is. It it just who has the time for that? Well, anytime I go you into know? Twitter, okay. So the, here's two issues, and I applaud them for. At, at least doing something, although I think that was kind of forced upon them by the media. Um, I don't think it was them taking proactive proactive measures. Um, in fact, we I know that was the case because it was, um, I think it might have been CNN or the New York Times, actually reached out to them repeatedly about some of these posts that clearly violated their terms of service until they finally did something about it, which they clearly would not have done ahead of time on their own. Um but that being said, here's the two issues with Twitter. When you go to the website, twitter.com, sign in and use it there, it's a terrible experience. So a lot of people like the third-party clients because they seem to understand Twitter better than Twitter themselves. And yeah, a, lot, a lot of the features in Twitter were originally invented by third-party clients. Yep. And so for, to me, I use um, – oh, what the heck is it called? Um TweetDeck, which I think is actually owned by Twitter. Yeah, they they bought it and yep. kind of neutered it. But they didn't really change a whole lot about it. It still works pretty much the way it has for a long time. Uh, it's almost like the, the forgotten Twitter client that Twitter mm-hmm. hasn't screwed up yet. And, of course, Twitter's changing a lot of things, and they're kind of turning off all these uh, public APIs that allow other people to make Twitter clients on iOS and the Mac and PC and Android. And um, I think it's going to hurt them long term. I think their best users are going to just go away. I think pretty much everything Twitter does hurts them long term. I I think they have no idea what they have or how to make best use of it. They are trying to turn it into a like Facebook Lite, and nobody wants that. No. However, the the reason that Twitter kind of hasn't faded to irrelevance because of all these problems is for two reasons. First of all, Donald Trump uses it. Yep. Um, and despite the fact that he flagrantly bleach, breaches all of their regulations, they won't do anything about that. And that's, of course, why people like Alex Jones get these passes and the slap on the wrist. Right. And the second thing is that the media supports Twitter because the media uses Twitter as a as a way of not doing proper journalism. Absolutely. So, you know, any time any story happens, the first thing that happens is somebody will go and browse Twitter pick up some uh, comments from a few celebrities, a few ordinary people, and bang, they've got a news story, yep. which is basically, this thing happened, here's some vox pop about um, about people responding to it. Oh, and by the way, I didn't need to go out and interview anybody. No. Yeah, and I so the media loves Twitter. Twitter for that, yep. but it doesn't really add any value to the conversation. No, it doesn't. So yeah. that's the two problems with Twitter. They don't uphold what they say that you know are, are guidelines and rules they don't do that and it's developing into the worst of the internet not the best of the internet yeah and the second part is for the power users that want to use it and know that the clients are really the way to go it's getting worse so 
Yeah. You know, do you put a death watch on Twitter at this point? I don't know. I well, you know what? I I don't think I don't think Twitter can survive the way it's run now. It's it is limping along. I think should should Donald Trump stop using it, or should Donald Trump not be in a position to be of interest to people? I think that's going to hurt Twitter pretty badly. Because I think I think that in, that level of interest is what's keeping it afloat at this point. I think, I think that will, uh, I think it will it will diminish in importance once Donald Trump is gone. I think um, another company will acquire it, and they will enforce uh, some standards, and that will get rid of you know the Alex Jones and the Trumps who clearly post things that you know shouldn't be posted. Um, yeah, I, look, it's not. It's not. Again, people go on about free speech. The point is, is that Twitter. It's the, the Twitter is trying to have it both ways. They want to encourage what they would say free speech, which means anybody can say anything. And then they say, but we have some rules. We have some lines, which are, the lines are very grey and and are frequently stepped over by people. And it does. There is very strongly the impression now that if you are known as if. You know, if you or I posted something horrible on Twitter, I'm pretty sure we get clobbered straight away. But I if don't. you are known in the media, no, I then don't you think don't. so. No, no, I've seen stuff posted by people with three, four hundred followers, and that's it. Half of which are bots, of course. Um, that is way over the line, and they don't get banned for it. Right. I don't think Twitter does anything when it comes to proactively looking at tweets. They wait until they don't have any kind of uh, mechanism in place to look for keywords to flag stuff for internal staff to look at to make sure that it's okay. Uh, including stuff like porn. I mean, that's, it's my understanding is again, I don't use it a lot. I've got, I use, like I saw a tweet deck and one of the settings in tweet deck is to hide content that might be of objectionable, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I'll see someone post a, a video and it says this was blocked by your settings. And I just assume that it's, it's either murder or a grotesque injury or porn. It's probably one of those things. And I don't bother to to see it because I, yeah. I, I don't want to see it. My, my home office is in a very public part of the house. I mean, I got the living room on one side and the dining room behind me. So I don't want to see any of that crap on my computer. Even if it was private and, you know, sitting in a corner where no one could see the screen, I still don't well, want to yeah. see that crap. So, yeah, so you still don't want to watch it. So, yeah. um, you know, but that, that's fine. The, the, I think I think that this is also the problem Twitter has is it doesn't, it doesn't, unlike places like Reddit or something like that, it doesn't let you subdivide the content. Um, so everything gets posted and um of course now you're not even getting it in a chronological order because on the website they are promoting stuff and promoting ads as well and injecting that into your stream um bless Sorry. you <laughs> um it, it you know it doesn't it they've taken away a lot of the granularity of control that stuff like TweetDeck gives you yep. and, and as you say all of those cli- all these clients now are basically on the clients are definitely on on uh, a death watch because twist has taken away their api and is not replacing it with anything equivalent in yeah. a modern api i think uh, that's what will kill twitter eventually yeah i think so too I, I i just don't i you know i don't see it surviving the way it's being run at the moment they they appear to be so tone deaf about what people want from the platform and how and how to use it, and I, I think they also have no idea how to get any value out of it. Um, I, I just think, you know, they are the, the MySpace of ten years' time. People will be going, "Oh, do you remember Twitter?" Yep, I think you're hundred yeah. percent right. Yeah. So, um, 
I posted this art. Well, I'm going to hold on to that one. Not really going along with this, but... So DEFCON happened in Vegas. Yeah. And you post... I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know anything about this. Yeah. Um, this kind of uh, article thread, if you will, about hotel staff in Vegas going through... And this was, you know, the black hat hackers, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, when the attendees were not in their room, that security would go into their room and search their stuff. So, yeah, the background to this, DEFCON is, as you say, it's a big hacking conference. And it's, you know, it's 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 well known for being one of those, this isn't kind of secure, there are security researchers there, but this is one of those ones where kind of uh, grey hat hackers like to go. So guys who who will do things like take down electoral voting machines or uh, this is the one where they have com- I don't I, I think black hat is something different but it's it's a similar sort of current conference to this it's a security conference where people are actively researching and trying hacks and that sort of thing is one of those ones where you know if you go you can expect that your phone might get hacked just for for lols it, that's the sort of environment it is um, but they have it in Las Vegas um, in Caesar's Palace uh, and of course, Vegas is pretty tight at the moment because last year they had a terrorist incident there where somebody got into the hotel room and, and shot up a whole load of people. You know, my boss was there. Uh, I didn't know. I, yeah. I know I was there the week before. Uh, my boss was in that hotel. Right. Well, I, I was at, at um, VMworld the week before and my hotel room in um, in the Luxor was uh, on the front of the pyramid looking directly over where that guy was shooting at. Yeah, that concert. So, My boss was at yeah. the concert. Right. Um, and his wife decided that, you know, that was enough. His daughter was one of the main people that organized the concert. Right. And so they had gone up to their room about a half hour before the shooting started. Wow. It, it's surreal when you're watching yeah. the news on this and then you go, someone says, hey, Brad, my boss, who is there. He was at yeah. the concert and you're like, Holy crap, is he okay? You know, it's so, it so, kind of yes. brings it home. So one of the criticisms of the Mandalay Bay property um, where this happened was that the guy had been in the room for a couple of days uh, with Do Not Disturb on the door, and so nobody disturbed him while he prepared for his little gun show. Um, so they, all the Las Vegas properties apparently have now adopted a new security policy, which is if you have Do Not Disturb on your door and you don't get maid service for more than 24 hours they the you know las vegas uh, hotels the there's all sorts of stuff you don't see in other hotels and things you sign up to in the small print you know resort fees and and all sorts of weird stuff you don't see in other places but anyway one of the things you're signing up to is permission for them to come into your room if you don't um kind of surface for 24 hours now these these defcon attendees they are the sort of people who you know, might want to do a bit of hacking in their room. Uh, I get the distinct impression from some of the feedback I received on this story that uh, a lot of them like to just unpack their stuff and leave it around the room and don't want anybody touching it or moving it or anything. So they obviously weren't aware that this was going to happen and people started turning up at rooms and touching their stuff. In occasion, on occasion, some stuff was confiscated, like soldering irons, because it was a fire risk. Um, and then there were some unfor- more unfortunate incidents where... You know, a, a male, uh, sorry, a female lone attendee to the conference was in the shower, and while she's in the shower, some security di- guy lets himself into her room um, on under this policy. Um, so, all in all, the thing is, you know, as as you might imagine, has been 
reported on pretty neg- negatively by DEF CON attendees. What I find disturbing about this is, first of all, that the, um, the problem with this policy as it's written, um, and I'm going to quote here now from the... Um, from what was posted in the story please note that Caesars Entertainment and its staff reserve the right to enter this room daily even if this sign is even if this sign which is the do not disturb sign is displayed on your door for maintenance safety security or any other purpose hotel staff will knock and announce their presence before entering well the problem with that is what it doesn't say is hotel staff have to have identification on them um, some of the issues around this turned up for the fact that guys were knocking on the door and entering the room and they were then being challenged by, you know, as you might imagine, challenged for ID and they wouldn't provide it or, sh- or couldn't provide it. And then people were getting very bent out of shape and it got kind of messy. Uh, but of course, you know, the, the other problem with that is that it's, uh, you know, it, it allows somebody pretending to be a security guard who might have access to rooms or have the equipment to get access to rooms. Which, by the way, to, this is uh, Black Hat. <laughs> yeah, Def exactly. Con. Yeah, DEF CON, yeah. Um, to get up to shenanigans at, at best and potentially something far more sinister at worst. You yep. could argue that this is a license for theft and or um, assault. Well, here's we, the thing. When Look, I traveled a lot, as long-time listeners of the show knows. I was all over the country. And I would leave, you know, my laptop and stuff like that, my iPad in my room because I couldn't really take that to the showroom floor wherever I was at. And <clears throat> if I was only there for two days, I would have the do not disturb because I, I don't need someone to come in and make my bed and I still have another mm. clean towel. I'm fine. Um, I didn't want them coming in my room because we've all heard the stories of stuff missing from hotel rooms. Yeah. The cleanup staff or somebody that has access to the room steals your stuff, you know, and I didn't want my stuff to get stolen. That's the only reason I didn't want them in my room. By the yeah. same token, it's not my house. Yeah. It's their house. They have 100% a right to inspect the room when you're staying in it because it's their property. And we do live in a world, as you pointed out, where... Just recently, a year ago, a terrorist attack happened because they respected the, quote, privacy of one of their guests. Yeah. But let's be honest. um, If it's a family of four and they put do not disturb and, you know, the hotel staff sees that they're going to Disney World, they're probably not going to inspect that room. They're having a black hat conference where it's a whole bunch of hackers. And like you pointed out before we started recording soldering irons in the room yeah that's probably going to get inspected for a good reason uh, exactly and you you do have to respect the right as well that the you know people who want to do bad things could use these sort of conferences as a cover so you have to be aware of that i think i think there's there's faults on both sides with this but the 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 fault of the hotel is as i, I think the policy is 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 loose and it's not well it's not well defined and also i think just knocking on the door and entering is not good enough i think you should you make sure for a start make sure your staff have id i think that you need to make sure that um you before you go marching in there you you've done a little bit more than just knock on the door i think you need to be flagging up you know leaving messages saying look we've we've not been in your room we need to come in in your room can we arrange for it to come and visit i think you need to do more than just any time we want we're going to knock on the door particularly as 
for a large conference, they may have drafted an external security. And let's be honest, that sort of security, these are the guys who couldn't get jobs in law enforcement or perhaps used to have jobs in law enforcement. Um, they sometimes aren't the most sensitive people on the planet. No. Yeah? The, and, and particularly if they feel that they're doing something that's related to, and I'm putting air quotes here, fighting terrorism. Right. Yeah? I think, you know, we all know that the adrenaline levels can go up and people can, uh, security professionals can let things escalate um, in a way that, um, well, we see it all the time with professional police officers now, where basically if you don't immediately comply, then they they come down on you because obviously you must be doing something wrong. And that is not appropriate in a... A hotel environment. It's the people you that know. have the show 24 running on a loop on their laptop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The guys who, who you know, like to go down the range at, at the weekend and stick a picture of Osama bin Laden on the, on the, on the uh, target. Uh, those are the sort of guys who may get a little bit heavy handed. Uh, and that's not a good mix with the people who are perhaps a little bit paranoid. Um, Paranoid, or perhaps you know, see hacking as a bit of a sport, and don't perhaps respect authority so much. But also, as well, I do have to say to to people who attend a conference like this is, you know, recognise that your ethos, your worldview, yeah, is not terribly compatible with organisations like Caesar's uh, Caesar's Resorts Incorporated. Yeah, right. Yeah, can maybe dial it down a little bit. Yes. Maybe recognize that some of this is going to happen and act accordingly. A lot of the comments on Twitter I saw about this were, well, well here's what you can do to prevent them. You can block the door this way and you can put cameras up. And sort of thinking, why not accept that people may come in your room yeah, and don't leave anything lying around that you're worried about yep. uh, and kind of deal with it that way? But the third criticism I would have is to... Um, is to def- the DEFCON organisers themselves, because really they should have been in front of this. Yep, absolutely. Yeah? When they book the hotel, they should be <clears> aware <throat> of it. They should make sure that they are informing their attendees that it may happen. And also when people start complaining about it, I think they need to put proper representation forward to kind of manage it on behalf of their attendees. And it appears there was none of that on this case. You know, you read through their publications about about the, the conference. It's all about how great it was and people felt so blessed and all this sort of thing. And this is not addressed at all. And that is, you know, I've, that that is my biggest criticism here is the fact that they should have owned it and they didn't. And they're not going to. Um, well, you got to realize the people that put on DEF CON and these kind of things, they're kind of anti-establishment. They're kind of, they have that hacker mentality that I think at one time was kind of a, needed in this society you needed people to kind of step outside the norms and and challenge authority but they've gone so far in the other direction it's just eye-rolling it's like ugh, you guys are so self-important if if you're going to have an event like that then hold it in a venue where it's going to be more compatible there are other organizations who would not be like for, for a start don't have it in las vegas yeah, right. Where, where security where is way high to begin with. Exactly. I mean, Las Vegas is all about their revenue protection. Ultimately, the reason they're doing this is not to prevent terrorism; it's to prevent the lawsuits that result from terrorism. Yep. yep. Yeah. So you know, have it in a different venue. Have it in San Diego or somewhere like that, where people might be a little bit cooler about it. And if that or means your Austin. event has to get, yeah, have the if that means your event has to be smaller, then make it smaller. You know. Well, it doesn't have to be smaller. I mean. You go to a place like Austin, they have, you know, South by Southwest. They're used to big crowds, and they are kind of anti-establishment themselves. So it'd probably be welcome at a place like Austin. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. yeah. It's 
Well, I, I applaud those who want to stand up for their rights and, and kind of draw attention to heavy-handed security when it's really not needed. That's cool. I, I'm down with that 100%. Yeah. Uh, complaining about stuff that you should know better anyways, i.e., hey, we lock ourselves in our room for a week at Vegas, and they want to come in and see what I'm doing in my room. This is BS. Yeah. You know what? No, that's it's the real no. world, pal. The, the problem with people standing up for their rights is 90% of the people who stand up for their rights don't really have a good idea about what their rights actually are. They have yeah. a, a, you know, a delusional idea of what they think their rights are, um, and it's very easy to get that wrong. And you've, if you, you know, unfortunately, if you're going to stand up for your rights, you've got to, you've got to make sure you're not claiming rights you don't really have. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always kind of the. I mean, let, let's be honest. There's a whole swath of people that think they have the absolute right to this, that, or the other, and you're like. Uh, you know, that's not actually a right. That's a privilege yeah. that's being afforded to you, but it's not a right. And there's a yeah. difference between having a privilege, like driving. Some people think having yeah. a driver's license is their right. It's not your right. It's a yeah. privilege. It, 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 stop it. <laughs> yeah, and, and also as well, you know, I, I think you and I are both old enough to recognize that um, – whether it's a right or a privilege, you'll you'll find it far easier to exercise those rights or privileges if you don't be a dick about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yep. you know, take the moral high ground at least if somebody's uh, trying to oppress what you perceive to be your rights. Don't start fighting back on 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 a similar level. Uh, you're, you're not going to yeah. win. Yeah. Um, last story before we uh, talk about something uplifting. Bethesda is a game company, and they make some fantastic games. Um, although, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't really play any of their games. I just know that they're really good. Yep. Um, here we go again, where I think the rights of the consumer is completely being trampled. What they're doing is uh, suing people who are trying to sell copies of their own game they paid for. Um, yeah, this is some, there's some powerful legal BS in this one. Yeah. So, so effects. So I'll give you an example. On. Yeah. I have a game. Mm-hmm. It's called, uh, in, in this story, it's called the evil within two. I don't even know what that game is. It sounds like some kind of a shooter where you shoot zombies, which, do absolutely nothing for me. I, I'm tired yeah. of those kind of games. They're so tripe and contrived and boring. Um, <clears throat> I have a copy of the game. I play it. My birthday hits and someone else gives me a copy of this game. Cool. Except I already got the game. So what do I do with this copy? Well, I'm just going to sell it on eBay or Amazon Marketplace. And I'm going to mark it as new because guess what? It's not even opened. It's yeah. a new copy. Well, according to the lawyers for Bethesda, you can't do that. Yeah. That's, that's that's against the law. Uh, what I find particularly interesting about this is that they say, well, you don't have a license to sell new copies of the game because you're not an authorized reseller, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, well, I, I kind of understand what they're saying, but there's a little bit 
it, it seems to be counterintuitive to common sense, like many things are in corporate law. But but I particularly like the thing where they say, well, not only that, you were selling it modified. And it's like, how can you be selling it modified if it's shrink-wrapped? Well, because as soon as you buy it, that means the, the warranty that applies to the game applies to you. If you're selling it as a new copy to somebody else, you're implying that the warranty applies to them, which you can't be because you can't transfer the warranty from you after you bought it. And it's just like, we're, we're talking about something that doesn't physically exist at this point. Right. Yeah, that is just that is just crap, I'm afraid. Excuse I, the language, but I'm just crap. Because, obviously, if the person who buys the game opens it up and then has a problem with it, they're going to ring up Bethesda and say, well, this, this, was, this was unopened when I bought it. Bethesda's not going to say, oh, well, we, we've got your warranty from somebody else. So, you know, it, it doesn't... It's, it's not real. It's a... Uh it's a desperate attempt by a company who sees a huge profit center, i.e. physical media games, going away. And then the moment that they sell it digital only through, you know, PlayStation or Xbox or Nintendo stores, they're going to lose a big cut, 30% yeah. or so, right? Uh, or Steam. Oh, my gosh. 30% of the sales of this game we're going to lose immediately once it goes digital. Forgetting for the fact, for the moment, that, yeah, but you have costs involved with the physical copies of the game, which may not equal 30%, but just the logistics of creating a physical copy of this game and the printed materials and And the labor involved. and Yeah, Yeah. your costs are really high. Where clearly digital is going to be the wave of the future. So you're going to go after some guy selling a copy, not... 500 copies. He didn't go buy 500 copies, mark them up by 20% and then selling them on eBay or Amazon. A copy of a game. Shrink-wrapped. Yeah. And he's he's not doing it as a business. No. Yeah. he's he, If he was reselling lots of games, it might be a different matter. I think, I think the legal arguments are certainly different. But this is a private sale. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is... This is just... He's not copying anything. He's not selling some, he's you know, reselling a physical yeah. object which yeah an unused legal. physical object it's a hundred percent legal yeah in the united states i could go out and buy an air conditioning come home and post it on facebook marketplace at a 10 percent markup see i i wonder if they pick these cases because they're trying to get some legal precedent set because yeah of we course all know the, ga- the yeah the game companies they hate gamestop uh, yeah, they hate the resellers. CEX and anybody like that who trades in used games, and they're constantly looking for leverage. Um, I, I understand. Go ahead. Well, I, I wonder if by they think by winning a case like this, they're kind of moving case law further forwards towards the fact that you know reselling any any physical media after you've after you've taken possession of it is is they they want to ban that. Yeah, Put because if they sell, if they sue this one small little guy who is a nobody. It goes under the rug. No one sees it. No one notices it until, oh, now they have legal precedence. You're absolutely right. That's what they're doing. Uh, Beyond that, um, I think that, look, I understand that developing these AAA titles takes a lot of money. This is not two guys working in their apartment for six months and releasing a game. And, you know, it's, this is a game that took hundreds of people working on that took two years of development, that the costs are astronomical, and that if you don't release games like that, uh, your business isn't going to do as well because that's what people want, right? Yeah. But that 
I get it, but you can't attack the same people that are buying your game, that are enjoying it, thinking that there's not going to be any, you know, really angry people out there that may ban your game. Look, I belong to this uh, Facebook group called Gaming Dads. All I did was post a link to this with a question mark. Time to stop buying Bethesda's games. And the overwhelming, I, I didn't even bother to read half the thread. It was hundreds of people replied to this. I was like, geez. Almost all of them were like, oh, I love their games, and I would never stop buying it. Well, then, you know, you get what could happen to you then. That's yeah, that's on you. They, they didn't that's, seem yeah. to go past their own wants. I want yeah. to play these games, so yeah. why would I do... Well, it's bigger than you wanting to play a game, moron. It's standing up for you and your rights, and they they didn't seem to get that. This, which, again, doesn't surprise me, because we go back to the... And I don't like to harp on millennials. I think millennials are awesome, to be honest with you. Uh, they're creating companies at a pace, jobs at a pace that I don't think has happened in decades. Um. But that being said, ugh, can you get out of your own way? Can you well, see beyond your yeah. own personal craven wants and needs? But Bethesda, they've got a long history of being very, very legal happy. Yep, heavy-handed. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, the history is the history. I think the problem is you look at the games industry at the moment, and you know what? A lot of people like the games, don't like the companies. Um you know these these companies really are not well respected. They like the games they create, but they don't like the corporate tactics at all. And there's going to come a point, and we've had it before in the games industry, where people are going to say enough, and all of a sudden the market will collapse. Yeah, and it doesn't take much of a collapse for a game that costs five, six, fifteen, twenty million dollars to develop. Yeah, to bankrupt a studio, yep. even a big one. Yeah, if the if the sales collapse, so you know what these companies really should wise up and, and perhaps just be a little bit more customer friendly. the The reason that they sue one of their own customers in the situation like this is because ultimately, from a corporate culture point of view, they just view their customers as, as rubes yep. who who supply them with money. They have no respect for them at all. So let's go in the opposite direction for a moment. I know some of you skip past the. Uh the commercial. Don't skip past Who? this one because we're not no, going to I talk about the product. I can't believe any of our any of our listeners would ever do anything right. so craven so as to skip past the commercial. Th- this is a little different. Don't skip past this, guys. Okay. So OWC, as you know, is our sponsor, um, but we're not going to talk about a product. We're not going to convince you to go buy a product. What we're going to do is talk about uh, Splash. So OWC has. Um, a long history of supporting some really good uh, charities. And this is another one. I'm going to put a link to the OWC page um, about Splash. Splash drinking water is the foundation of a flourishing society, is how it starts. Clean drinking water helps stop the spread of waterborne diseases and viruses like diarrhea. We think of diarrhea as, ugh, I'm just on the toilet for a couple days and I'll be fine. Diarrhea killed millions of people a hundred years ago. Yep. Um, because that of course leads to dehydration and you know, they didn't have access to clean plumbing. So that led to other problems and diseases. Diarrhea is a huge killer. It really is. It's 
they didn't have Tums or Pepto-Bismol back in the day to alleviate this problem. So, um, and it leads to the death rate of many, many people. This isn't, yeah. this isn't a funny ha-ha thing. Diarrhea is not a funny ha-ha thing. So, uh, OWC is partnering with Splash to support communities in need. According to Splash, over 1.8 billion people lack consistent access to clean water, and 2.4 billion lack access to improved sanitation. This is increasingly concentrated in some of the world's largest cities, creating what amounts to an urban water crisis. Splash understands this has global implications, in particular on the well-being of children and future generations. OWC is committed to raising $250,000 along with providing the company matching funds up to $125,000 to help Splash provide access to clean water and sanitation in these communities. So they're asking for donations. Uh, they're trying to raise uh, three quarters of a million dollars. Um, you got a little extra money in your PayPal account. Can you spare five bucks? I'm going to. So follow the link from either MyMac.com or TechFanPodcast.com, show number 361, to OWC's uh, splash donation page. Make a donation. Seriously, it's water. It's clean sanitation. For those of you who live in the the Western world where you take these things for granted, that you go do your business and flush the toilet and you don't have to think about it ever again, that's not the case for... Huge communities in this world still. Well, some people have to cook and clean and drink water that's that's Untreated. basically from an open sewer, from a river where other people are, are dropping all their waste into it. Yeah, yeah, a, a lot of people have to do that. I mean, I I always find it. I mean, we we have that we have the luxury in the Western world of deciding that you know we don't really like all the water that comes out the plumbing. We could go and buy bottled water instead. Which is, you know, a huge oxymoron, really, for somebody who has to um, drink water from a filthy river, yeah, is the fact that you'd say the water from the plumbing is not good enough. You're going to go and buy something else because it doesn't taste nice. Um, and the thing is, what you and I might spend on a couple of bottles of, uh, of bottled water, yeah, donate that to somebody like Splash, and they can make real differences with that money. Yep. Uh, you know, look, I, I, I live in Michigan. I'm literally about 80 miles, 70 miles, 80 miles from Flint. But a lot of people listening to this show knows all about the poisoned water in Flint. So water is the key to our society. It's the key. Without clean access or access to clean water, I don't care how great your iPhone is. I don't care if you're angry with Elon Musk for his strange act antics the last month or so. Um, none of that matters if you're sick and dying because of diarrhea. So it, it, it doesn't take hardly any time on your part. Go to the website, donate, make a difference. Make it'll, Hey, do it for selfish reasons because it'll make you feel better. Yeah. So we want to thank OWC not only for sponsoring this episode, but for doing their part to help make the world a little bit better place. Let's talk about our Wikipedia wiki trolling this week, David, I, I actually sent you a, a message. I think it was yesterday. Yeah. I've been thinking about this subject for a while, and we could do it here as a wiki trolling, and I thought about doing it as like a kind of a, a full episode, but 
I think it would take a lot more research and time than either one of us are kind of prepared to uh, to devote to it and, and to prepare for it because we're both busy guys. But it's the CD-ROM. We're in a time now where you can watch an entire season of shows in full 4K over the internet. Well, back in the 90s, David, that really wasn't an option. Well, back in the 90s, there was no internet for a start. Well, there was. I mean, it, it, it's MyMac.com launched in the 90s. Uh, but it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't the internet as we understand it today. No. And certainly, you would not connect to it via anything other than a computer. You, there were certainly no handheld devices or um, small devices that could... Uh, or anything that connected to your TV that could use networking in in any shape or form, really. Uh, and yeah, you, you there was no there was so many of the resources we take today for you know for granted. There was no Google, there was no um, you. There was email. Yep. But but the, not really much more than that. There was barely web browsing. It was very much in its infancy. And if you wanted to look uh, to look things up, you had to go to a paper book. You had to go to a library. Well, CD-ROM no, changed that. Yeah, there was no Wikipedia or anything like that. Now, CD-ROM, yeah, and the, if you didn't live it, it's hard to understand. We went from, and I clearly remember this, we went from the, the common data storage medium of the floppy disk holding yep. 1.44 megabytes of data. Which is nothing. Which is nothing. That's less than a, the, than a photo on your iPhone nowadays, Yeah. And, that, and you had to have whole programs. Now, I remember getting copies of uh, Microsoft Office from, from Microsoft when I was working in the, in the mid-90s. Yeah, and it would come on like 56 floppy disks. Yes, and you have to load yeah. each one. You'd and have to load heaven each forbid one, one of those floppy disks were bad, which happens exactly. frequently. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's kind of where we were. And then the CD-ROM came out on the back of the CD uh, audio disk. And the CD-ROM was basically was the same technology but just storing pure data instead of audio streams and it held uh, and 650 megabytes yeah uh, and I'll, you know and then they squeeze a bit more out of it i think it i think the large they it went up to around about 680 700 depending on yeah 700 how, was the yeah. where it kind of maxed out and at that point we got the dvd but let's concentrate yeah. on the cd-rom format it was invented by denon for those who don't remember um I, don't, I think Denon is still around, but Denon oh, yeah, was yeah. uh, a really high-end uh, audio manufacturer of component stereo systems and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, I, Denon always made really good stuff. I don't know if I ever actually owned a Denon uh, piece of equipment, but I, I always liked their stuff. Yeah, it was always cool. Cool looking, and I always liked the name. I always thought Denon sounded really cool. Yeah, it did. It's a good one. So they invented this technology and unveiled it in 84 alongside Sony. And it really did. For those who don't remember, it, it, it there was a craze from the mid-80s, a little bit beyond that, because honestly, it didn't take off right away. But just call it the end of the 80s through, let's say, uh, 98, 99, somewhere in there. 98, because 99 is when the DVD really started hitting big. So for... Not quite a decade, but almost a decade. CD-ROM was the preferred method of getting content for computer users. And yeah. I remember going into Circuit Cities and Best Buys and places like that, little computer shops, 
looking at external CD-ROM drives. And there were shelves full of content. I'm not talking about just games. There were games, but more importantly, there was all of this content that we would consider, well, that would make more sense as a web page. You're absolutely yeah. right, but there was no websites. And there were all these interactive things that you could buy and and yeah. view. And you could also back up your own data. I remember getting my first CD-ROM. It was built into a Mac. And I immediately copied every single floppy drive that I owned onto my hard drive and immediately burned all of them to a couple of CD-ROMs. But even, even that, the, the, ability, the ability to create your own CDs um, came later. I remember my first CD-ROM drive. I remember this quite vividly. I, I'd bought this PC from a kind of a computer fair. Um, and, you know, it, was, uh, it wasn't brand new, but, it, you know, it was, it was pretty good for the day. Um, and I played Doom and stuff like that on it, did a bit of work on it and everything, but they didn't have a CD-ROM drive. Um, and I remember going with my, um, this is my first wife at the time, to another computer fair, and, uh, she, you know, we saw the internal CD-ROMs there, and she, they, were, they weren't cheap. No. She said, she said, oh, you know, you should buy one. I clearly remember taking that thing home, how excited I was, um, and fitting it into my computer, and then I had some CD-ROM cover discs that come with a couple of magazines. I've been able to put in that. And, and how different using the computer was then. Because oh, yeah. you had so much, you know, people really kind of built on the format. So you, had, you did have streaming video on these, of very low quality compared to what we have now uh, on these discs. You had, you remember Microsoft Encarta, the encyclopedia program? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, which was like Wikipedia on a disc. Yep. Yeah, uh, and that also had video and photos and stuff like that. And it, of course, it was, you know, it wasn't great compared to nowadays because the but stuff it was, was not. It, but it, it was great compared to what we had at the time, which well, was well, you can't even don't don't say compare to. It was great. Yeah, it, it, it was fantastic. Here's some of the big yeah. titles that I found online. You remember Cinemania, 1994? Yeah, it it, it was kind of like the IMDb, but it was. Uh, what was his name? Roger Ebert. And it was like movie reviews. It was awesome. You can go in, you can see some audio clips or hear some audio clips, video clips. There was movie history on it. There were pictures. It, it was like nothing. It was interactive. You can click things and things would happen. It was awesome. And it was stuff like that, that it expanded what you could do with your computer. The CD-ROM was really one of the driving factors of making getting a home computer a wise investment for a family. Yeah. Because you had stuff like Adam, the inside story. Remember that? Yeah. Where it was on every single shelf at every electronic store. Uh, the the dissected or, you know, the cutout skull. Yeah. Looking was, to the uh, side. I think it was Dorling Kinsley who did a whole load of uh, very high-quality interactive CD-ROMs on various different subjects. The human body and space travel were a couple that I particularly remember. Um, and the, the thing as well is that what, uh, what CD-ROM allowed people to do was... Before, before that, computer magazines had cover discs and they were floppy. Yeah. And they had 
barely, you know, they had a few programs on, but everything was tiny. When the CD-ROM came out, all of a sudden you could have full demos of, of new software. You could Absolutely. have, you know, I remember there was demos of, of things like Microsoft Word and Access and DBase and things like that. The cut down versions of the whole piece of software so you could try them out. Um, they distributed whole copies of old operating systems on CD-ROM so you could try them out at home. Remember, this is pre-internet. You could not most people, if you had uh, connectivity, you had you had a 56k modem at best. Yeah. You just could not download this stuff because it would take too long and cost too much. You would you'd be on the phone for two days and cost and a, with a two day call. It, it was in, it was just it was just not feasible. Whereas the CD-ROM allowed you to get this stuff. A lot of the a lot of the games that became very successful were distributed as cut down, you know, trial versions to try and encourage people to buy the actual full game. Uh, and of course, there was a whole subscene of people who who basically just never bought the full game. They just played played to death the uh, the demo Doom, versions, stuff like CD ROM. Yeah. yeah, some you of know. the some of the things that really kind of drove it though, it wasn't the promise of all the storage, it was the content. So yeah. while we we applaud Denon for creating the standard, a lot of different standards were created and never amounted to anything. This was different because. As a society, we were already used to CD-ROM. So this was something that was intimately familiar with us. So we had the storage capacity and, you know, we understood this format. We and had, the, we had yeah. discs that we were already using. So we, we had the, the sleeves at home. We had yeah. the shelves that were exactly the right size to hold the CD. Well, more importantly, from a distribution point of view, you could take your CD-ROM image and have it pressed at a commercial audio CD pressing plant. For so pennies. Being able to, yeah, being able to create CDs was, I mean, the costs of creating floppy disks, which were a vertical thing, yeah, for software distribution of any kind, not just magazines, but if you had a program you wanted to sell, were enormous. Whereas CD, as you could say, you could turn out in a very, because CD pressing is very quick, you could turn out um, a very large number of, of discs in a very short period of time, which made it a lot cheaper, as well as the fact the discs were physically bigger, so you could have, uh, you know, you could have all that data on there. You could put lo- lots of extras on there. You could put, um, I remember a lot of software distributors would sell, it, sell you a program, but then there would be directory on the CD-ROM with trials of some of their other bits of software yep. on, so you could try those out And too. you'd get magazines with CD-ROMs in it that would have all these demos and... Yeah. quick time movies that you could watch interviews that the magazine did and it was awesome um, it was and, and the- all of that is before as you mentioned the cd writer was developed right yes where all of a sudden you could start creating your own discs at home yep so two um, of the big big things that i remember david and i think you were have fond memories of both of these as well and of course we didn't know each other back in the, the 90s but still number one Star Trek Omnipedia. Yeah. If you were a Star Trek fan at all, you owned the CD-ROM. It was awesome. It worked on both Mac and PC. Um, it, you know, it, it covered all the TV shows, Next Generation, Voyager, all the films up to 95. Um, but it was this encyclopedia of all the Star Trek goodness. You couldn't help but be a fan of Star Trek if you popped this disc in and started exploring it. And there was hundreds of hours worth of content created for this it almost felt like the ultimate fan website if you will it was amazing uh, and also it had an interface that kind of made you feel you were on the enterprise you were using a console on the yeah. enterprise yeah it was it, it made all the beeps and boops and yeah oh it was such a good disc 
But as good as that was, there was one CD-ROM that outshined everything else. And everybody had a copy, even if they didn't play it. And that's mostly because this disc, the CD-ROM disc, was a bundle for many manufacturers in their external CD-ROM drives, as well as a lot of computer makers, including Apple, would include this in the box. And it was a game that was based around pictures. There was no moving video to speak of, not really. There was a couple uh, black and white fuzzy ones on purpose, but it was pictures, and you move through this game by clicking something, and the next picture would come up. And it was beautifully rendered. It was unlike anything you saw before, and it was called Mist. Yeah. And Mist was amazing. It had this ambient sound, and the whole thing is a giant puzzle. For older listeners... I guarantee you had a copy of Mist at one time or another. Whether you played it or not was irrelevant. This it this was a game changer. There was never it wasn't it almost wasn't a game. It was an exploration, and it was um, just looking at stuff and moving around. And there's these switches, and there was nobody guiding you. Okay, you got to do this, but you would discover these puzzles, and to to solve a puzzle, you had to do something else and it was laid out logically it wasn't one of these things that hey you remember in the first level where you saw that uh um i don't know uh, a block that didn't seem to do anything well i hope you picked it up and kept it because that's going to be the thing that you have to use to win this game no it wasn't illogical like that it made sense yeah the thing thing about mist was that um it was a game that just wasn't possible before the cd wrong it it wasn't absolutely yeah you know, you just couldn't do anything like that because it was displaying pre-rendered pictures rather than actually using the graphics hardware in the in the computer. It looked, it looked so uh, well. It looked like something from the future. Yes, it was photorealistic. Yeah. Look, if you go back and look at the original Mist drawings, it looks like ass on your computer, and that's because we've got high-res screens. And but you got to remember what this was played on. Very what we would consider now low resolution color screens, six forty by four eighty if you were lucky. Um wait, six forty yeah, something like that. Yep, um, that's right. That would be you know, yeah. maybe thirty two bit color if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh it originally came out on the Macintosh and it was originally created on Hypercard. So mm-hmm. th- the guys who created uh Rand and Robin Miller they were fans of HyperCard, and they wanted to do something with this cool technology. For those who don't know what HyperCard is, we'll talk about that in the future. It'll be a Wikipedia entry for us, or wiki trolling entry for us. But it, it was mesmerizing. I, rem- I just remember the sounds. If someone turns this on, and I can't see it, and I just hear the sound, there was no like musical score or anything. It's just these ambient sounds. Well, I will know the, immediately. Yeah. See, the clever thing about the, the, the thing about CD-ROM was because CD was also an audio format, you could have stereo audio sound. Tr- yeah, you could have audio, properly, properly rendered audio tracks um, on the CD as well, and then have the computer play those while it was displaying data. So you could have a proper soundtrack. And this is a time back in the time when you, if you're lucky, you had a 16 bit sound blaster card that did electronic music. Um, or, you know, stuff that was that was slightly better than that on the Mac. But the thing is, certainly nothing like what we have today. No. Um, where, you you know, computers can generate multiple polyphonic 
sounds using uh, genuine samples and they have the power to make it sound like real music you didn't have that back then so again that was transformative the fact that you could have real music real speech recorded speech playing um during a game and i you know, the, the thing you, you talked about all the CD-ROMs on the shelves. The reason for that was because it became a competitive arms race. It did. You wanted everybody wanted a CD that could read the CDs quicker, because yep. that meant you had less gaps in the games. Because yep. sometimes you did would get stutters or pauses as it pulled data off the drive. Well, I remember so, playing Mist uh, originally on a two-act CD-ROM, and you'd click something, and you'd literally have to wait for the next picture to load. As yeah. it accessed the disc. And then I remember playing the same game on like a 32X C- a CD-ROM, and it was flawless. It just, boop, yeah. there's the next one. But, but the, da- the downsides real- of the uh, of the high-speed CD-ROMs is you end up with something sounding like a hairdryer yeah, in your did. Uh, computer. Yep. <laughs> but if you want to know kind of the origins of how people design websites and stuff like that, you need only look at the CD-ROM craze because that is kind of where using hypertext like in mist or hypercard like in mist where you click something and something else comes up sound familiar you do it every day when you're on the internet yeah but just the interactive where you put your mouse over something and something happens um fluidly in in great graphics and all of that started with cd-rom so if you want to trace back where what we think of as the modern web, where it kind of originated from, I don't think you have to look any farther than the designers who are creating some fantastic content like this, the Star Trek on a PD or Mist, uh, where it started, or Adam, the inside story, you know? That's where it yeah. started. That's where the inspiration came from, because they didn't have anything before that to work from. They started this whole kind of interactive graphics, and, you know, you click this, and this thing happens. That's where it started. Uh, and if you have, if you just want a very simple, linear understanding of how far we've come in twenty to twenty-five years, CD-ROM six hundred and fifty megabytes. Yeah, what now for about five dollars you can get a thirty-two gigabyte um, USB flash drive. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's um, uh, it's amazing what yeah. what you what we do as a as a society. Yeah, with the limited technology of the time and. For those who think we're kind of at the pinnacle now, you have no idea. Um, it's going to come a time very soon where physical media of any kind is irrelevant because it's just going to be cloud-based. Now, of course, cloud-based just means bigger server farms and hard drives somewhere. You still need the physical thing. But on your desktop, on your phone, you're not going to need storage because it's going to be, we're going to have super-fast networks where everything's just there. Um but this is, I think, a hugely significant invention that probably is poo-pooed as, oh, that was this 90s thing. It's, that was just kind of silly. No, the CD-ROM was a massive industry. I remember when it collapsed, um, but I also remember when it really became popular. And I don't think it gets enough recognition for what it really led to. Yeah, and it's really only the last... What, five to seven years, I'd say, that computers have stopped shipping with an optical drive as standard? Yeah. Admittedly, they went to DVD. Uh, and remember, part of the iLife suite, um, one of one of um, Apple's big selling points of the iLife suite from the uh, early 2000s was the fact it came with iDVD, which was optical optical disk creation software. Yep. Well, they- I, I remember the Mac coming with software. You put the, the blank CD in, uh, or DVD, or 
CD-ROM in, and it would show up as a disc on your desktop, and you just drag stuff to it to copy over to the. Yeah. That was read only, or uh, you couldn't well, erase no, it, stuff from the CD-ROM. Yeah, it, was, it was write once, right, read, right once, read yeah. many, yeah, worm. So but, yeah, that was a thing. Is basically once you dropped it to the CD, it, it was there forever, like yeah. a fly in amber. Yep. But that's what we wanted. That's yeah. what we used it for. So thank you, Denon, for creating something that became, I think, probably much larger than Denon ever envisioned that it could become. It was uh, a game changer for the way we process our information and got our content. Not just games, but interactive stuff. Phone directories. Remember the phone directories on CD-ROM? That was awesome. Yeah. That was so... I, I kept mine for many, many years before I finally talked them out. The postcode database used to come yes. with CD-ROM. Um, you could subs- here, here in the UK, you'd subscribe to it, uh, and then every uh, kind of two, three weeks, they would send you a new CD-ROM with the update, and you would load that into your system, and that allowed you to do address search by postcode. Nowadays, we do that on the internet, but back then, you would subscribe to a service to get that, and you had to be a business to be able to register for that. Yeah, because you know it was viewed as slightly secure information. Amazing technology. Uh, I wouldn't mind revisiting again someday. Maybe uh, looking at some of the forgotten CD-ROMs that were hugely influential or popular, and are largely forgotten now. For for many many years, I I subscribed to Microsoft TechNet, which was um, a, a technical service allowing you to preview. Uh, and do local installs of all the software that Microsoft sold for development purposes. So you pay them a few hundred pounds a year. And basically every, uh, I think it was every month, they sent you these folders full of disks. Yeah. Yeah, CD-ROM disks. And then I had this big kind of uh, binder that they they gave you when you signed up that you kept them in. So you, you would throw away old ones and replace them with new ones. It was a yeah. fun time, wasn't it? And, and yeah, I had this massive binder full of, on <laughs> CD, every single piece of software Microsoft was selling at the do, time. Do you remember when you finally threw that thing away? I, and it wasn't that. I think it was only when I moved house recently I finally got rid of it. And I got rid of another one that actually was full of games, um, with games which I'd kind of copied from the original discs myself. Right. You know, and so I'd f- uh, put the original discs away and I would use the copies in case right. they got scratched or something. Yep. And, I, yeah, there was about... 250 old PC games in there, none of which I played anymore. Right. And the stupid thing is, I threw it out, and now I find myself, when I want to play those games, it. I yeah. have to go out and buy the game again off Steam or Good Old Games or something like that, you know. So we want to thank you guys for... Uh, we do get some feedback. We're going to save that for next week because we're, we're kind of long in the tooth here. Um, fun topic, David. That was yeah. fun. I liked it. Um, you guys got a topic you'd like us to cover for wiki trolling? especially if it's a tech one, let us know. We will happily talk about it. Uh, send us feedback, the show at techmanpodcast.com. You can also go to mymac.com or techmanpodcast.com and leave a feedback uh, there. Uh, Steve, uh, we've got your feedback. We'll talk about that next week. Um, but, David, I'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. <laughs>